please stand as you're able for the reading of the scripture today, which comes from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. Hear these words. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or in earth below, or that is the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children of the iniquity of the parents, who the third and fourth generations of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Michael, for reading our lesson uh, this morning. Jonathan, for leading us uh, in our prayer and in our liturgy. And uh, a special thanks to members of our chancel choir, along with our scholarship uh, interns from Belmont. We have a collaboration with Belmont, and we're, we're so happy to have some of our students with us, giving the chancel choir, some of the chancel choir, a little break today, and uh, certainly remembering our youth choir, as Jonathan has mentioned, who's at Lake Genaluska. Uh, we heard from them yesterday. They were skiing all day, and they were said to be rehearsing last night. Not sure about that, but they were said to be working and rehearsing last night. We remember them as they return home tomorrow. Uh, and also, just a word about this special weekend. Uh, we're so grateful for the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, was thinking about him this morning. When I was in seminary uh, at Emory University in the 80s, I had the distinct privilege of taking a class at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was Daddy King's uh, appointment, his church where he preached, where uh, Martin Luther Jr. grew up there. And I still remember how moved I was going into that old sanctuary where his mother, Martin Luther King Jr.'s mother, as you may recall, was gunned down while playing the organ on a Sunday morning. And I remember when I was a student there, um, I remember that the word was that Daddy King would go to that jail once a week to visit the man who shot his wife. And when asked how on earth he could do it, he said, I've lived too long to start hating now. I'll never get over that. And I'm grateful for his legacy and certainly grateful for the work that continues uh, in reconciliation that he began and was so steadfast in sharing. Well, if you're visiting with us today, uh, we're in week three of our series called Written in Stone. What we're doing is we're taking a closer look at the Ten Commandments, the second half of the book of Exodus. As you recall, in the fall, we did the first half of Exodus on deliverance, the deliverance of the Hebrew slaves out of Egyptian bondage. 
And the first eight weeks of the new year, we're thinking together about the second half of Exodus, specifically the 10 rules, the 10 commandments, which I think are in essence the, the constitution of the nation of Israel. After their deliverance from bondage, God gave to his chosen ones these instructions, these directions to live by. And last week we talked about when all else fails, follow the instructions. But I want to remind you when all else fails, stop doing all else. Do the one thing that God requires. In the series, the first four commandments concern our relationship to God our association, our bond with Yahweh. And we dealt with the first two commandments in the last couple of weeks. The first, of course, was no other gods before me. And the second that we talked about last week was you're to make no graven images. You are not to worship idols. And we talked about the fact that the word idol in Hebrew, pesel, means icon or carved image which was associated with the Canaanite and Egyptians in regard to their polytheism. In other words, the culture in which the Hebrews were in bondage believed in many gods. There are historians who say that the Egyptians believed in as many as 2,000 gods or divines. But these chosen ones were to be intentionally, deliberately monotheistic. They were to be undivided and exclusively devoted to Yahweh. The third commandment involves our respect for the name of God. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. Some of you remember the King James Version much better. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That word vain is an interesting one in the Hebrew, shava, which means false, means empty or profane. You are not to speak of God in an empty, profane way. The word profane, of course, is the root of the word profanity. I, I don't know why it is, but when I was a teenager, and I think it still is this way today, we got the idea that it was somehow cool to be profane, that it's somehow cool or dope, as they might say, uh, to be irreverent, to be disrespectful, to speak before we think, to say whatever, to vent how we feel at any given moment. And, and we often would justify ourselves by saying, I'm just trying to be real. But our attempt to be real without being respectful morphs into malice and just frankly, meanness. And so it matters the way we speak. I'm reminded of Paul's counsel to the church in Ephesus. This is Ephesians 4, 19. Let no, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only speak what is helpful in building others up according to their needs, not mine, so that it may benefit those who are actually listening. Paul said something similar to the Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to respond 
to everyone. It is important to be real, but it's imperative to be respectful. I grew up with the old adage, maybe you did too, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a lie. Through a word, God created all it is. Through a word, God created the heavens and the earth. Through a word, you can build somebody up or you can tear them down. With a word, you can edify or you can demonize. Now, notice that sometimes when we object to profane talk, we run the risk of being called judgmental. And now and then when someone says something particularly vile and we call them on it, they'll appeal to the First Amendment, free speech. But if you object to it, that's not free speech, that's censorship. And I've never quite understood that. For some reason, there are times, even in our culture, where it seems acceptable to profane the name of God in public, but you mustn't proclaim the name in public. And that seems a little inconsistent to me. But the other concern in the third commandment besides the profane part of that, we are to refrain from speaking the name of God in a profane way, but we are also to abstain from speaking the name in a perfunctory way. I think the profanity of a preacher is to speak the name of God in a casual, cavalier, nonchalant way as though nothing is at stake. It's interesting to me that the word profane literally means to make something that's uncommon, common. To make something that's holy, unholy. It's like occasionally when we speak of God as the man upstairs or the big guy in the sky. Or I heard somebody say the other day, the big kahuna. It's a way of desanctifying that which is holy in our language. It matters the way we speak of the name. The Essenes were one of the sects of Judaism. There were four sects, Sadducees, Pharisees, the, the radical zealots, and also the Essenes. The Essenes were a Jewish sect that copied or transcribed the Old Testament scriptures. They would take a copy, they would make another copy. Their scrolls were discovered in the caves of Qumran, which is between Jerusalem and Masada, in 1946 by a shepherd boy. These Dead Sea Scrolls, as we call them, go back to the first century. There's a copy there of many of you have seen them in the Museum of Israel. Historians tell us that these scribes, these Essenes, were so awed by the name of God that whenever they came to a verse that included the name, they'd stop writing and wash their hands because so holy was the name that they refused to write the name of God with unclean hands. And by the way, in the Old Testament, the name of God is mentioned 5,874 times. That's a lot of washing. But in fact, they also, historians say, would only write the consonants of God's name, not the vowels. 
because the name of God was considered too holy to even enunciate. You can't even pronounce it. It is so transcendent. God's power, God's name is so holy that you're not to pronounce it. You can see it and think it, but to say it cheapens it. In the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew, Jesus teaches us to pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In Greek, that is hagios. It means literally holy. It means different. It means set apart. It means sacred. Now, I think sometimes, personally, I'm better at name calling than name hallowing. We're better at labeling, stereotyping, than we are are honoring names. But it's incredibly important to note that in the Hebrew culture, a name was not just a label, was not just a designation. The name of a person conveys their nature, their character, their reputation. The wisdom writer picks up on this in Proverbs 22, a good name is more desirable than great riches. It is to be esteemed more than silver and gold. Names are important. Ecclesiastes 7.1 says, a good name is better than a precious ointment. Proverbs 10.7, the memory of the righteous is a blessing. Listen to this. But the name of the wicked will rot. It's seriously important. I think this is why we're so particular parents and grandparents when it comes to naming our children. I've done a lot of baptisms in 40 years, but I have yet, I have yet to baptize a baby boy named Adolf, and I don't think I ever will. I've never baptized a kid named Judas. I've never baptized a girl named Jezebel. I've never baptized a boy named Lucifer. I've met him in little boys before, but I've never baptized one. <laughs> Those names have been forever spoiled by those who dishonored them. But contrast the names that I just mentioned with these. Abraham, Sarah, Joshua, Ruth, Deborah, Peter, Timothy, Paul, James, John, Lydia, on and on. Those names convey a sense of honor and reverence because of the life represented by the name. Now, as followers of Jesus, we are called to honor his name. And sometimes we exploit the name of God, whether we mean to or not. And this is where the commandment comes in. You shall not wrongfully use the name of God. We do that sometimes, even when we don't mean to. We exploit the name sometimes for our own personal Uh, advantage for our own personal gain. We call that prosperity gospel. We exploit the name sometimes to validate the latest social or political ideology. We misuse the name sometimes to exclude others with whom we disagree. We misuse the name sometimes to justify conduct and behavior that bears absolutely no resemblance to Jesus. We have a name for this kind of corruption. It's called Identity theft. Identity theft 
is misusing someone's name in order to sanction something that is contrary to the character of the name. My wife was the victim recently of identity theft about two months ago, took her credit cards, but as far as I can tell, the person who took them is spending less than she was, so I'm okay with it. That's, I just did it, identity theft. That's defamation of character. And what I want you to notice in this text is that this is one of two commandments where the consequences are specified. Listen to it again. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God for the Lord will not acquit anybody who misuses his name. That's serious business. There's a little known story in the book of Acts, maybe you've never heard of it. It's a case in point of the importance of the name. It's a story about the seven sons of Siva. Uh, I forgive you if you've never heard of it. Seven sons of Siva. Siva was the name of a rogue Jewish priest in a city called Ephesus. And this rogue Jewish priest had seven boys who grew up to be itinerant exorcists. They dabbled in magic and sorcery. They had a reputation for helping rid people of unclean spirits. And the apostle Paul was in town and these seven sons of Siva observed that Paul was pretty effective in his ministry in Ephesus. In fact, Paul was healing people left and right, physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, in the name of Jesus which is powerful. Even some people in Ephesus were told in this scripture, Acts 19, that when they touched Paul's handkerchiefs, when they touched his prayer cloths, they were made well. And the seven sons of Siva were impressed. In fact, they saw in Paul an opportunity to expand their business and increase their fortune. So they decided to include in their repertoire a cleansing prayer in Jesus' name. Now, mind you, they didn't know Jesus, didn't care about Jesus, didn't believe in Jesus, but if it worked for Paul, surely it would work for them. And so here's what happened. One night, these seven sons encountered a demon-possessed man, and they laid hands on him, and they said, and I quote, we rebuke you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And the demon responded by saying, hey, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who, pray tell, are you? And suddenly that old demon jumped the seven boys and put the hurt on them, beat them to a pulp, tore their clothes. They fled the city wounded and naked and the whole town was awestruck. And it ends with this line, I love this line. And curiosity about Paul developed into a reverence for the name of Jesus. Now there's a moral to that story. Be careful about tinkering with the name. The name of God is not a plaything. The name of Jesus is not a means to an end. The name is power. The name is fire. The name is healing. The name is wholeness. And the other part of this moral is a curiosity of life leads to reverence. 
A holy life that is different leads to reverence. I think that was true of Dr. King. He could have, because of what he had been through, lived a life of vindictiveness and revenge. And in some ways, perhaps it would have been legitimate, but he didn't. After all he'd been through, beaten, thrown in prison, he lived a life of love that was so curious that it developed in the nation of reverence for the name of Jesus. I was reading one of his old books the other day, Strength to Love is the name of the book. It's a book of sermons that he preached when he was in Montgomery. After all he'd been through, he was able to write this. Listen to this. I still believe that love is the most durable power in the world. Over the centuries, men have sought to discover the highest good. This has been the chief quest of ethical philosophy. It's one of life's biggest questions. Greek philosophy, Epicurean, Stoic sought to answer this question. Plato and Aristotle sought to answer, what is the summum bonum of life? What is the highest good? I think I have discovered it, he said. It's love. This principle stands at the center of the cosmos. The gospel of John is right. The letters, the epistles of John are right when he says God is love. That, that's his nature, love. That's the character of his name. He who loves is a participant in the being of God, says King. And he who does not love does not know God. Dr. King not only preached that, he lived that and died that. And because of his life, curiosity about Martin developed into honor for the name of Jesus. In fact, Martin King's name is a synonym for reconciling love. One last word. Something happened last week after the 11 o'clock service that was really unusual. I was standing in the back after the benediction, receiving and speaking to people, and a mother, a young mother with five children, came out and spoke to me. I, her last name was Davis. I said, I think I can remember that. And she said, you don't know me, but I know you. We moved into the Nashville area not long ago, and my grandfather and your father were best friends in college, Emory and Henry College, Abington, Virginia. They were best friends. And then I remembered Charles Davis. This was his granddaughter. She said to me, I thought so highly of your father, and his witness was so important to me that I named one of my children after him, and I want you to meet her. And I did. Her name is Chapel Davis. Like me, she was given two last names, and I couldn't believe it. I had no idea. I called my mother when I got home. She had no idea. She didn't know about it either. But apparently, 10 years ago, eight years after my dad's death, this woman named her daughter after him. We were instant family, and I gave little chapel a hug, and I told her to take care of the name. 
Then I confessed, I've messed it up a little, but you can up the value of the name by the way that you live. Words have meaning, but names have power. Names are important, but not as labels, but as witness. The book of Exodus was not written so that we could remember the name Israel. The book of Exodus was written so that we could remember the name of God, Yahweh. And Israel is a witness to God whose very name means existence, whose very name means salvation, deliverance, redemption, and reverence. And so be careful with the name. What a joy it was to witness the giving of a name today, to baptize this beautiful little girl in the name that is above all names. A name at which someday, says Paul, every knee's gonna bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hallowed is the name. Holy is the name. And my prayer for us is that we might live in such a way that our lives would produce a holy curiosity that will inspire others to affirm and bless the name. May it be so, in Jesus' name.